It's August 16, 1946. Gandhi's worst fears are about to come true. Leading up to Jinnah's call of direct action day, the country was on edge with most people, fearing a tsunami of blood. Gandhi was unable to hold together the unwinding threads of unity that he had so painstakingly woven. And not all his protégés were willing to listen to him either. At the concluding session of the Muslim League Council, Jinnah declared, Today we bid goodbye to constitutional methods. We have forged a pistol and we are in a position to use it. This is an All Indians Matter in-depth limited series, Gandhi, The Final Years. I am Ashraf Engineer. All Indians Matter in this series, we will cover the last phase of the saga that was Gandhi's life, in many ways the most dramatic of his extraordinary journey and also perhaps the most significant for a nation about to be born. In the second part of this series, I continue my conversation with Tushar Gandhi about the Mahatma's final years. Tushar is the great-grandson of the Mahatma, an author and peace activist who's written Let's Kill Gandhi, a chronicle of the conspiracy to assassinate the Mahatma. He's also written The Lost Diary of Kastur Maiba, translating a diary found at the Kasturba Ashram in Indore. Tushar, once again, welcome. Thank you, Ashraf. And thank you, the listeners. Enjoy the second episode. Tushar, the Muslim League had already carried out provocative campaigns and violence had been reported from Bombay, Ahmedabad, Allahabad, Aligarh, Dhaka and many other places. Describe the atmosphere in the country and also, importantly, what effect it would have had on Gandhi? Ashraf, you called this the period of his last years of his life. But you forgot one very important aspect of it. That it was a traumatizing period also for him as well as for the nation. And I think that was the most important aspect because everything that he had imagined for his country as it progress towards independence was coming undone. Everything he strived for was getting negated. He had hoped for unity and peace in all the components, amongst all the components that made up this nation. And thread by thread, he was seeing them unravel. It was a huge trauma and it was compounded by the fact that the two greatest foils in his life Kasturba and Mahadev were not there to... Kasturba would, you know, ward off the effects that it would have on Bapu. Mahadev would provide the strength for him to withstand that. Both were taken away from him. And he was isolated and it was tragic. And he was watching the campaign of hate. As today we sit and watch the campaign of hate being carried out by irresponsible politicians in their lust to grab power. They're not bothered about what it's going to do to the nation. They've never been bothered about the nation. They've always been only lusting for power and the fruits of that power. And we see it unbridled today. The same thing was being done at that time when again there was that race to grab power. 
and politicians were using it left, right and center. The Muslim League had gone all out in their campaign of hate. Hindu Mahasabha was providing the fuel for an inferno amongst the Hindus. The Congress was balancing but ensuring that, you know, there were no hurdles in their quest for power. And amongst the three, between the three, Gandhi was alone, all alone, watching the whole thing, realizing the consequences and seeing that he was not able to ward it off. And August 16th was the most traumatic episode in this beginning of a series of trauma and tragedies that he was to face. Let's come to Bengal. It was ruled by the unlikely coalition of the Muslim League and the Hindu Mahasabha. These two polar opposites have come together to form a government. And the chief minister was Shaheed Surawardi. He declared August 16, 1946 a public holiday. That's direct action day, as Jinnah called it. Describe the horror that followed in Bengal and how close was the country to civil war? It was civil war, Ashraf. There's no doubt about it. It was civil war. We've just never termed it in that uh, issue. The fact was that the country was being torn asunder. And it began with that direct action day tragedy and trauma that was inflicted on India. It was very convenient that Shahid Surawardi, who was one of the most rabid of Jinnah's generals, was at the helm of the government. And who had made it possible for him? The uh, Hindu Mahasabha, as their coalition partner, enabling him to come into power. But they were not poles apart. They were actually the same entity, just with two different facades. They were the forces of hate. They were the forces of terror. And they were both unleashed on Bengal in that day. Shahid Surawardi used the administration to ensure that the message the Muslim League wanted to given in the most brutal manner possible. In the run-up of it, Muslim leaders had not shied away, the Muslim League leaders had not shied away from broadcasting their intentions. They said, we'll do whatever. We don't believe in non-violence. We don't believe in this. We are the sword of Islam. It was very convenient for them to become the sword of Islam when it required and then talk about the Islam as the peaceful religion. What they did not tell honestly was they were their own mercenaries. The mercenaries for their lust for power. Both sides had only mercenaries, professional gundas. And they were unleashed on Calcutta. Initially, the Muslims went on a rampage. They were aided, abated, provided arsenal for their rampage. The police were locked up in their barracks, told not to do anything. There were episodes where policemen picked up protesters, brought them to the prison, and even before they could be locked up, orders would come from the control room saying, release them. They would confiscate weapon-carrying vehicles, impound them, and even before they could be sealed, orders would come, let them go, kind of thing. Weapons were being distributed, and the mobs were being incited. There was a big rally at the Maidan in Calcutta. And after the rally, as the mobs dispersed, they walked through 
Calcutta terrorizing people. The funniest part was Hindu majority areas were not targeted because they knew, you know, the Hindus are well equipped to defend themselves. They had identified the pockets of Hindu minorities and they were annihilating them. You know, in the recent times, we saw that in 2002 Gujarat, 1992-93 Mumbai, 2002 Gujarat, and many more, 84 Delhi, when the Sikhs were identified and their minority outposts were attacked and they were massacred. Muslims in 92-93 and 2002. The modus operandi is utilized right from that time, that spectacular success of hate is being utilized even today without making any change to it. The campaign of hate to desensitize the humane nature of human beings has been very systematically was conducted that time, has been conducted now also. So first the Muslims go on a rampage in Calcutta and it's described as the most horrific of uprisings. The streets are lined with dead bodies, burnt homes, sewers are choked because humans have been slaughtered, butchered and uh, pieces dumped into the sewers. And so the sewage overflows. Then the Hindu right wing gets into action, two days later, three days later. And their retaliation is even more brutal than what the Muslims did. And that sets off the whole chain of violent protests that we keep talking about communal riots. But it was civil war, there was no doubt about that. Gandhi hears about all this at Sevagram Ashram. And I thought at least that he showed great insight by pointing out the British role in the build-up to the carnage. What did he say? He said that you're still administering the country. It's your duty to protect your citizens. You have to take action against the terrorists. Why aren't you doing that? And that is precisely why he does not go to Calcutta. Unlike today's leaders who are like tourists at the calamity. You know, a tragedy happens in Morbi. The bridge collapses. People die. What does the administration do? It spruces up the hospital so that when the Prime Minister visits, they have great visuals. Bapu does not indulge in that because he knows that at this time, it's not for them to make provisions for my visit. They have to work amongst the affected to, you know, establish law and order once again. And so he does not rush to Calcutta. He does not go. He tells the British, you are still ruling over us. You are responsible for administering this. A crime is being committed. Act against it. He doesn't even tell them, don't use violence. He says, do what you have to do to stop this. So now, contradiction upon contradiction. While this is on, there's an interim national government sworn in. I don't uh, recall the exact phraseology, but I think it is called interim government or provisional government. But whatever it is, there's an interim government sworn in at the national level. And strangely enough, Despite its initial opposition, the Muslim League becomes a part of it. Not initially. Ashok. Not initially. They take their like time. I said, they, despite yeah. the initial opposition, they take their time and they become part of it. Now, there is a contradiction, inherent contradiction there. And it told on the government. How? See, Ashraf, uh, basically, the fact remains that the British, although they decided to have an interim government, their 
attempt was to further sabotage the process of transfer of power. And they wanted to play people against each other. And they realized that uh, the best way to harass someone is to make one team out of two opposing forces, where they'll be busy fighting each other more than they'll be fighting us. And we'll enforce our agenda through it. And so that kind of a hodgepodge interim government is sworn in. Congress leadership realizes that it's very important for them to be a part of that because they are already seen as the villains who did not help in the war effort. So if they stayed away from it, it would be very easy for the administration to say, okay, the Muslim League is there, we'll bring them in, we'll bring the Hindu right-wing in, we'll bring the princes in, and they'll form the government. And then the Congress would be kept out of a say in the shaping of India. What we today like to describe is it as idea of India. Congress would have been isolated from that, in, kept out of that. And so the Congress realized that they had to be in there. They also realized at that time, it's not going to be an easy task. You're battling the British and you will be fighting your team inside. You know, like a captain of a team not, rea not being able to be confident, again a cricket simile that his pace bowler would bowl to get the batsman out or would bowl a ball so the batsman could hit a six. Yeah. <laughs> now, Tushar, that brings us to Norkhali. First of all, where is Norkhali? Describe it and what happened there. And weirdly enough, Gandhi seems to have had a premonition about it, didn't he? This was the time, Ashraf, in his life when he had many premonitions. You know that quiet voice within him was kept on telling him, watch out, watch out, beware, beware. And he realized that the warnings were genuine. There was a minefield laid out. Noakhali was part of that minefield. Noakhali is a district in East Bengal at that time, Bangladesh of today. It's one of the most remote of districts. It's in the badlands, as it is called, you know, where inundation is always happening because of its geographical topography. There's, it's like a backwater. And, uh, you know, seawater comes in, riverine uh, water, it's a delta Storm kind of thing. Storms come in. Every year there is devastation over there. It's also the hotbed of extremist Islam. The clergy holds sway over there. There is an economic disparity also. The landlords and the moneyed class and the educated class are the Hindus. And the worker class and the artisan class are the Muslims who are always oppressed by the moneylender, by the Thakur, by the landlord, their laborers and things. So there is a class conflict also. There is a class antagonism simmering under the surface. So it provides all the ingredients for a classic tragedy to happen. Just needs one spark. And that spark is provided by the hatred. Because after direct action day, the Muslim League goes into these badlands where they are in majority and gives exaggerated accounts of how the Muslims were persecuted in Calcutta post direct action. And says, you know, the Hindus will do the same thing unless we attack. Like 
you know, a few days back, the Home Minister in his campaign in Gujarat goes and says, before 2002, the terrorists, into inverted commas, were rampant and nothing could stop them. They were patronized and all that. In 2002, Narendra Modi's government taught them a lesson and they've been subjugated ever since. And this is the campaign that the Muslim League very successfully carried out in Noakali and Tipara, saying, teach them a lesson. Otherwise, they will, you know, overpower you and we'll be finished. Islam khatre mein hai, like Hindu khatre mein hai. And Tipara is what would be Tripura today? No, Ashraf, Tipara is a district in East Bengal or Bangladesh today, adjoining Noakali. It's even more remote. It's even more prone to disasters, even today. And even a greater hotbed of fanaticism. So they are both districts of East Bengal, part of Bangladesh today. Now, Tushar, all violence is devastating. All ethnic violence is gory and disturbing. But what happened in Noakhali was unprecedented. Describe one or two illustrative incidents. Ashraf, we must also remember that uh, the carnage in Noakhali Tipera was orchestrated. It wasn't a spontaneous uprising as it was portrayed to be. It was planned, it was strategized, and it was executed accordingly with people assigned to play the roles they did. Noakhali and Tipera, it was very easy for the administration to target the people. A Hindu lawyer in one of the town's uh, district headquarters in Noakhali was a pain for the Muslim League. So he was targeted. Chaudhary Badi, the Chaudhary family, had defied Gulam Sarwar, who was the big shot in the Muslim League in that area. And he was a thorn in Sarwar's back. And Sarwar was came to be known as the Führer of Noakali. Yeah, it's a term yeah. that uh, Parallel Nayar also Parallel has Nayar refers to him as that. He was known to be the orchestrator and commander of the mobs and the one who strategized all the violence. And the two episodes are very gruesome. In the first place, the lawyer is given a death threat. He refuses to obey. His office is attacked. He escapes the first attack, but he's tracked down and he's killed. That is the time when they also did killing and burning. The bodies were disposed of by burning their homes and dumping them inside there and all that. Chaudhary Badi comes under attack. Now, Chaudhary Badi has their own protectors. So when the first attack happens, one of the gunmen of Chaudhary Badi, he opens fire with his uh, musket and maybe injures or kills a few of the mobsters attacking him. And so the mob goes away. And then a larger mob attacks, first, uh, you know, surrounds Chaudhary Badi and systematically attacks them and drives the family up onto the roof of their homes and then sets fire to them, forcing them to come down. And then one after the other, the menfolk are caught and slaughtered in front of their women. Pyarelal describes it in all details. It's a very grim thing. And today, its description would be enough to ignite 
a spark or an inferno of hatred against the Muslim community. We must remember it wasn't the Muslim community who was the attacker. Muslim politicians were doing it just as Hindu politicians are fanning the embers of hate and turning them into infernos today. We must remember that those are the villains, the politicians, the self-serving politicians then and the self-serving politicians today who must be attacked, targeted, not the communities, not Hindus in general, not Muslims in general, but the exploitative, self-serving politicians of both the communities. And they were the ones who were conducting, orchestrating the whole tragedy. Unfortunately, just like today, common people were getting swayed by their campaigns and you know, orations and turning into beasts. It wasn't individuals who were doing it. It was the mob that was the beast. Just like today, it is the mob that is the beast. Yeah, and I think the parallels to today from that time, as you keep saying, and I also keep saying, I think are so stark. Keep coming back to that. It's like it's like a time machine, Ashraf. Yeah. We can it just looks jump. different, but yeah. the same thing is happening. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah. There's an interesting thing that happens around this time. It's around the time when Nathuram Godse and Gandhi come face to face at protests in Delhi. So tell us about that. It's the same string of the protests at the Pratna Sabha every evening. And Nathuram Godse and Apte accompany Savarkar for a conference in Delhi. And during that period, they go to the sweepers colony and they stage a protest against Bapu as the prayers from Islam happen. And this is the one of the most violent of the protests where Bapu's volunteers have to actually physically take him away from the prayer meeting and protect him by, you know, putting him inside the hut in which he was staying. And Nathuram Godse and Apte go back to Pune and brag about it, that how, you know, they terrorized Gandhi and drove him away and all that. It's documented. Yes, and, so, and it's spoken it's, about in our yeah. earlier series, it, Murder, see, of, Murder earlier of the series. It is also a very stark evidence of the conspiracy in action. On 20th January 1948, Nathuram Godse and Apte are the leaders of the group that attacks Bapu. And 20th January was the actual date planned for his murder. It didn't work. It didn't work, fortunately for India, because if it had worked, the right wing who was the sponsor and patron of the whole conspiracy would have got away scot-free with it. Because they would have blamed it on disgruntled refugees who did it out of anger. And their role would have been absolutely camouflaged from it. Yeah. So Gandhi leaves for Calcutta, intending to travel to Nokhali on October 28, 1946. In Calcutta, he meets with Surawardi. So describe the exchange between Gandhi and him. Bapu is always, you know, always he knows who the culprit is. And he confronts them. Every time, wherever they are. With the British, he confronted Churchill with the Muslim League. He said, Surawardi. And so when Surawardi was trying to play the innocent, he went and said, the talk that they had over there is very pertinent. But he says, but Surawardi, you are referred to as the butcher of Calcutta. So what are you talking about all that? He just says it. No missing, <laughs> messing with words. He said, what you did, you did. Admit it. And Surawardi is trying to be diplomatic, but also saying, look, I'm the chief minister. 
I'm not going to, you know, you are the commoner. Why do I bother with you? But at the back of his mind, he also knows this guy is going to bring an end to our designs, not only in those riot-torn districts, but in the entire India. Because he's capable. I orchestrated things in Bengal and Calcutta, but this man can negate all its effect. By just his mere presence over there, so that meeting, Shuravardi is very arrogant with Bapu. He's very dismissive of Bapu. He said, "Yeah, who are you? I'm the chief minister over here." And at that time, they were almost like prime ministers of provinces. So he says, "I am Badi Cheese. What are you? I'll be patronizing towards you. Do what you like, kind of thing." But in his heart's heart, he knows that. Everything that I've worked for, this man will undo, and so that is the kind of meeting they have. And so he comes out. Bapu also comes out and says, you know, he was in his own space, and I tried my best. But that's not important. What is important is what I'm going to do in Noakhali and Tipera. That is when in Calcutta, he declares that now henceforth he's going to exist on half rations. He's not going on a hunger strike, but he says, "I'm going to tax myself in two ways. I'm going to work in the affected area, and I'm going to consume just half of the nourishment that my body requires." He was anyway a very small, very frugal, light eater. Very frugal yeah. eater. You know, he said one meal a day, just one meal a day. Yeah. So he's sending out a message that be prepared, that one meal can also stop. And everybody says, "Oh my God, this is one man who does what he says." Yeah, so Gandhi goes to Noakhali, and he's constantly on the move, uh, traveling even by bamboo canoes during the visit. And I believe he was also fasting at one point. Now, at one point, his soles have deep cuts and are bleeding. All of this must have told on him physically and emotionally. What was his message during the tour, and what was his strategy for restoring peace? I believe he sent one peacemaker to each village to establish relief camps, and he called it the supreme test of ahimsa. See, he realized he realized that the situation is bad, and he said, "Now I have to put myself at the stake." So he's accompanied by a big entourage, a big police party for his protection, which uh, Suravardi has very cunningly done. Insulate him from the people. Don't let him have free reign over there. First thing he does—that's never going to work with Gandhi, is it? <laughs> He's, I'm not going to be bothered by it. He realizes that he has to go into the villages. He can't sit in the district headquarters and say, "Come to me and tell me," because the carnage is still happening in the villages, in the hamlets. Noakhali is built in such a way that this, those two districts, that it's very easy to isolate. Villages, because some of them are only connected with one bamboo bridge. Some of them have only the transportation possible is in canoes through the waterways. So you flood one place and it becomes unnavigable. You burn off one bamboo bridge and the whole, you know, settings of villages get isolated and things. You block one road and the entire sub district or taluk will be isolated, and that's what they've been doing. So the police. They have constantly been saying that our access to those places has been blocked. We can't go there. That's why it's happening. If we were able to go there, we would stop the carnage. Gandhi says, "Okay, you can't go there by vehicle, no? I'll walk. I can even wade through water if required." 
I don't need a bridge. I don't need a vehicle. I'll walk over there. So after spending a few days in the district headquarters, he says, this is not where the peace will be made. I have to go to the villages. I have to be in the midst of people, talk to them, make them responsible by being responsible myself and tell them that no matter what, I'm not scared of you. Don't even try that. I'm going to be in your midst, do your worst. That was his challenge to everybody, every time, to the British, to the fanatics, to everybody. Just do your worst. I'm not bothered about it. I'm going to come there. My very presence over there is going to challenge you. And that's what he does. And that is where finally he tells everybody, you're not walking with me. This is not a procession. We are here to make peace. And so go into the villages alone and challenge them, saying, I'm here. You don't want me, kill me. But I'm not going back. And from there, start the work. And not, not an inquiry commission, Ashraf. Not a blame game of go find out the culprits and blame them. No. He says, go over there, work in the community, normalize things. Find out the problems of the communities over there. Normalize them. Don't go and say the Muslims are the culprits, so we won't work with them. Hindus are the victims, so we rehabilitated them. No, rehabilitate the village as it was prior to the thing. Today, we see that experiment being done in a political manner with the Bharat Jodo Yatra, where the problems are there. He's talking about the problems, but what he's primarily doing is, I'm coming into your midst. And I'm not coming to talk to you. I'm coming to listen to you. Rahul Gandhi. Rahul Gandhi and the Bharat Jodo Yatra. And it's inspired from these the Dandi Kuch and the peace march in uh, East Bengal. Now at one point, there is a suggestion that pockets be carved out in Bengal where only minorities, in this case the Hindus, would be allowed to live. And Gandhi opposed this vehemently, saying these colonies would be looked upon as threats by the majority community, in this case the Muslims. This, I thought, was quite far-sighted because we are seeing exactly that today in Gujarat, where the government has invoked a law prohibiting sale of property to Muslims in some areas and vice versa. This is official ghettoization. And the Muslim pockets are referred to as Pakistan and their perimeters as border areas. Ashraf Bapu was always far-sighted. He never ever responded to instantaneous things. He always saw their consequences. And he realized that it may feel justified now to have Hindu protectorates and colonies. But it's going to be the wound that festers all the time. And neither will the Hindus be safe. And also the Muslims will use it as a pretext, saying it, those are trouble spots. Attack them, attack them, attack them. That's what is happening today. Or at the very least, isolate them. Or isolate them completely. That's what is happening today in Gujarat, in all the places where... In Mumbai, post-92-93, we see ghettoization in Mumbai itself. Yeah, but there's no law prohibiting sale of property. There's no law. But thing is, Ashraf, a law can be fought. But an unconstituted practice is very difficult to get away with. Show me where in the western suburbs, in the middle-class educated suburbs, in a housing society, a Muslim can rent or buy a house in an apartment. Very cleverly worded, 
vegetarian Hindu society kind of thing. And then go to Bhaindar, Mira Road and all that and see what is the state over there. We don't have a law, but this is the practice. So how did the situation begin to normalize? It must have been a slow process. And was there a realization among the political leadership that ignoring Gandhi's warnings is a mistake? Ashraf, Bapu was never an instant remedy. A miracle balm that would, you know, heal the scars immediately. It was a slow cure. And he knew that it was a slow cure. What it did was, it gave his opponents the feeling, this is going to fail. It's not having effect. Nothing much is happening. Nothing much is happening. So they said, okay, let him do what he wants. He's not going to succeed. Our campaign is much more effective and intense for him to sabotage. And this guy was like the termite who was patiently eating away from the inside and making them hollow. He wasn't in a quest for instant cure also. Because he realized this malady is long-term and it's terminal. I have to nip it in the bud. The cure has to be so that it can never recur again. And so he's working for that. And he said, I don't care. I'm not, you know, give me 50 days and then hang me if you want kind of a thing. I'm saying give me a lifetime. I'll keep working the whole lifetime. And maybe... In future, after my time, you'll enjoy the fruits of what I do today. He's patient. He doesn't have a five-year plan. Yeah. So, he takes his time. He's not bothered. And initially, everybody keeps dismissing him, saying, yeah, he's walking over there. It has no effect. Our campaign is much better. Nobody is coming to see him. The press, the media of that time is also following him and saying, doesn't seem to be having any effect. The reports coming out of Noakhali uh, doesn't seem to be having any effects. The leaders in Delhi are also saying, why are you wasting your time over there? Come back. It's more important for you to be in Delhi because we are negotiating transfer of power and things. He says, no, my work is over here. And then slowly as he's walking, he's penetrating the villages. He's penetrating. And he's not preaching to anybody. He's just saying, I'm here I'm going to soothe the agony. The cure you have to find yourself. And slowly the tide starts changing. Slowly the reports that come out of Noakhali, both in the media and in the administration, something is happening over here. You know, people are calming down. What's happening here? What is causing this? And then slowly the realization happens that we underestimated this man. What Surawardi was dreading in Kolkata, His mere presence was going to make that difference. And that was making that difference. But it took time. It took time. But the roots went deep. It's now January 19, 1947. Gandhi's tour continues and he meets an interesting character, Bibi Amtus Salam. Tell us about her and what she did. Bibi Amtus Salam came from a very orthodox Muslim family. But she was influenced by Bapu and went under his care in the ashrams, grew up in that. But she was a firebrand leader. And she was not like the other pacifists saying, nay, nay. She said, if there's trouble, I'm going to jump in over there and I'm going to defy people. And she did that in Calcutta, in many places where riots happened. If she was present over there, she would jump in between the two mobs and tell them, I'm standing here. 
you want to kill each other kill me first that's precisely what she was doing in bengal before bapur arrived over there too a very interesting character very frail very delicate soft spoken but she had the ability to go and grab the mobsters by their collars and said behave yourself i'm there i won't kill you you'll have to kill me to go beyond me many cases she managed to avert carnages she was active in noakhali even before bapu reached noakhali and in sirhind bapu meets her but before that there is a curious thing in sirhind there is a durga temple in which the traditional sacrifice happens during the festival of durga and there were three swords in the temple which were used for the sac- sacrifices they were considered to be holy swords divyastra and they would be prayed to and things and a campaign was carried out that those were the weapons that hindus were going to use against the muslims to butcher them because the swords had been taken out prayed to and sharpened in preparation for the feast so the campaign was see they are preparing and this time they will not slaughter sheep they'll slaughter muslims with that so a vicious attack happened a slaughter happened the temple was destroyed and the swords were uh, stolen from there so when the peace mission happened and amtus salam was uh, stationed over there the stumbling block was the hindus said but these local muslims have stolen our swords and unless our sacrificial swords are returned how can we be assured of our safety over here so that becomes a stumbling block and bibi abdul salam realizes that the muslims are being dishonest the leadership the muslim leadership is being dishonest the muslim community is so much in awe of the leadership that they will not say that yes these leaders are the culprits catch them and one in particular so she said return the swords the muslims kept saying you know they'll return one then they said we found two then they said third is not found and things then they say one of the leaders has taken it away and he's untraceable finally bibi says okay till the three swords are returned i'm going to go on a fast to death no water no food and she does it the muslim says karo you're not going to last you know 3 days later you'll have a sip of water one day two day three days four days five days six days 10 days and everybody is panicking this woman is not giving up the administration comes in and says she dies we got problems oh yeah stop her and she doesn't they come and make promises itna kar denge you know you got two swords be happy with that she said nothing doing three swords back she fasts for 24 days she's become a skeleton she's running a temperature bapu is walking he's been told about the developments and he says okay let her do she's doing it no let her do then he's told that she's being unreasonable she's not flexible and bapu always said that when you are doing satyagraha you need to be flexible you need to see the larger good he said if she's not being flexible let her die he knows that nobody is going to let her die and he also knows that if she dies it will have a impact on the whole of bengal so he tells him okay she's being inflexible no let her die but what he's saying is do you dare let her die yeah 
weaknesses in his own character for things that were going wrong because he felt that everything that was happening was his responsibility in some way or the other because of him and he had to atone for that and it was the what he saw in noakali compounded by the loss of ba that triggered his questioning of himself and his test of himself which resulted in the brahmacharya experiments in the next part of gandhi the final years we will talk about the carnage in bihar <laughs>